So we are nearing the end of Psalms of Ascent, and this is actually David's last psalm within this section, the Psalms of Ascent from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, where the pilgrims uh, going up to Jerusalem would sing these songs. It was the playlist, as we've been calling them, would sing these songs on their way, the great festivals to worship Yahweh at Zion in Jerusalem. And uh, let's say this is uh, David's last one. So in your mind, you need to think about this. These were sung to ready people for worship. Um, Just as we may sing songs uh, to remind ourselves of who God is, who we are, remind ourselves of the gospel, to draw us to a place, uh, to get rid of some of the nonsense that sometimes can go on in our lives and our minds that can become a blockade. We use worship songs and silence and prayers and meditation all for that. The Psalms of Ascent, that playlist, took us through a whole series of life experiences. And this one uh, is the Approach Jerusalem, um, written by David is readying them together to worship together. So the theme in this psalm is the theme of unity. Um, It's a a simple psalm. There really is a a statement in verse 1 that then is spoken of right in the final line. And in the middle, I can never remember if they're similes or metaphors, but if I use the word simile and it's metaphor, you'll give me the benefit of the doubt. But in the middle, there are two descriptions of what verse 1 is really speaking about. So it's quite, quite simple but profound, I think. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So, Father, in your mercy, with the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you. You are the King of kings, Jesus. You are the Lord of lords. And by your Spirit, you're here. May we have hearts which are open, mind which is willing to, to think, um, may your will be done, Father, in this place. May there be a nugget, may there be a simple word, may there be a phrase that would be said or a thought that comes into our mind that would be from you. We don't want to just sit here passively, Lord. We want to engage with your word. We want to hear. Um, and we want to live life in its fullness. In the name of Jesus, amen. So this guy, Justin Anthony Garcia, uh, and this is at Lee County Sheriff's Office. This is his mugshot. And in 2020, he was assaulted. No, he was jailed for assaulting, I think it was his cousin. Um, he was, uh, yeah, his, the charge was aggravated battery. So what did he do? Were they fighting over religion? No. Nope. Were they fighting over an affair? No. Nope. Over a sports game? Nothing like that. The argument... I tell you not a word of a lie was over whether almond milk was superior to whole milk. (laughs) He was jailed because he was furious with his cousin because his cousin was arguing that whole milk is so much better than almond milk. And again, it's a big fight. And this is, is cut and pasted here. Uh, from the court. It says, their verbal argument became physical when Garcia became enraged at the victim for disagreeing with him. He proceeded to punch the victim with a closed fist to the victim's left side of his forehead. And when the cousin tried to fight back, Garcia produced a knife, a pocket knife. 
and the victim became scared of what Garcia might do with a knife and proceeded to run away from Garcia as he chased the victim through the front yard. And Garcia did catch up with him and punched him with the knife. And the knife punctured, it was a tiny wee cut, but he did time because of that. And a source at the scene um, I thought this was hilarious when I heard this. A source at the scene was able, unable to confirm uh, which variety of milk Garcia preferred <laughs> or, whether, uh, or whether actually any milk was spilt during this argument. This is true. This dear man, because of that, there was this big argument. But we know since the fall, since Genesis chapter uh, 3 or chapter 2, Two, I'm getting doubting myself here. From Genesis, let's just say, there's the fall in chapter 2 and 3. Um, that conflict between us comes extremely naturally. Doesn't have to be much where um, bitterness or um, an argument uh, or something physical can happen. It, it can, you, you've heard that phrase, the red mist. I used to say that about me, the Barry red mist. Um, I believe that's not anywhere near as it was as a boy. And one of my best mates is here and he would know that. Um, but there's no difference in the church. Conflict exists in the church. That is why, although this is a simple wee psalm, I find this psalm incredibly difficult. I've often seen this psalm produced as a talking point, as a discussion point, when there's a big fight in the church. And so the pastor or the leader of the church takes us to Psalm 133 and says, how good and pleasant it is when brothers live in, in, together in unity. In fact, the word behold is there in some of the older translations. And so I've really found this a difficult psalm because it's often been a psalm I've heard being used when there's conflict. And uh, I don't think that was the setting when David penned this. Imagine David, um, the Ark of the Covenant is in uh, is in Jerusalem. It's still in the tent of meeting. The, David is not allowed to build the temple. But uh, the 12 tribes are united. There is peace in the land. The king is on his throne. And the worshippers are going towards Jerusalem. And David pens this. He's seeing something before his eyes. A life dream. How pleasant it is when brothers make a pilgrimage to one of the great feasts in peace to worship the Lord. I can just imagine, David is obviously a psalmist, and I can just imagine these words flowing from a heart which is overflowing with joy and thankfulness to God because he's seeing before his eyes his dream come true. He is the king and his people are at peace and they're coming to worship. The 12 tribes of Israel are coming to worship. It's a context, I think, of when this was written. But we in the church, certainly my experience anyway, I've mostly heard this being used to confront conflict. And in the last six months, may not have been as long as six months, I know of five colleagues, six colleagues, who have either been made redundant, a pastor made redundant, or who have been moved on or moved on, mostly because of unresolved conflict in pastoral and in leadership teams. Six 
of John and my John might know some colleagues who have moved on. And there may be peaceful situations that are left because it was better for them to move on. But there's something that's unresolved there. So conflict is very real and the collateral damage is quite significant as well. However, by virtue of us being followers of Jesus Christ, we are God's people and we have been called the church. And the problem with the church is that some of our spiritual siblings drive us nuts. Or as the saying in Glasgow, rip your knitting. And they're, they're different from us. Some of our brothers and sisters in Christ have quirks. Some of our brothers and sisters in Christ are abrasive. And I might just be talking about myself. But that is what we are called the church, the people of God. And we suddenly don't all come in and be family and everything is hunky-dory. We rub off each other. And if we give it time, and if there is grace, and if there's forgiveness, and sometimes you need a lot of time for that to come about, something beautiful can, can happen. I've been following Eugene Peterson's book, I'll Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And I thought this was a good quote to just throw up on the screen for us here. The people we encounter as brothers and sisters in faith are not always nice people. They do not stop being sinners the moment they begin believing in Christ. They don't suddenly metamorphose into brilliant conversationalists, exciting companions, and growing inspirations. Some of them are cranky, some of them dull, and others, if the truth must be spoken, a drag. So whether it's over milk, over a, a personal grievance, or over social issues, or just because of the way we live, it's rare at times to experience the community that God intends for us to live in. And yet our prayers, even the prayers that we prayed this morning, were bold prayers, were prayers of faith, maybe prayers that were in line with God's will. I don't know. But we are called the church to come together, to worship together. And I've got a few things to say about that as we go on. To love each other and to care for one another. And you'll be known as my disciples if you love one another, as Jesus says. And so we're going to look at a few things in Psalm 133, which offers, I think, a better way. Verse 1, how good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. This is what we're going to look at. Verse 1. So who are the brothers that David could possibly be speaking of here? Is he talking about biological brothers? I don't know if there's any siblings in here, but um, I don't know if he necessarily is, but we all know that siblings fight as, as much as anyone, but I don't think that's what David is, is uh, getting on about here. If, the, this, if this is one of the Psalms of Ascent, which we know it is, and if it was sung by pilgrims on their way to one of the great feasts at Jerusalem, as we know it is, well, I think there's good reason to believe that David is talking about us, the family of God, 
pilgrims, disciples of Jesus. He's saying to us how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters, because we're part of the new covenant, brothers and sisters in Christ live together in unity. Some things are good, but not pleasant. Other things are pleasant, but not good. There's something morally good and there's something emotionally pleasant about getting on with one another, about bearing with one another's sins, about being patient with one another and not just giving up. I think it's good and that it pleases God and it's pleasant and it brings delight and happiness to those who experience it. So that's why I think just about that unity and just about that good and pleasant. This needs to refer to us. Yes, David was looking out and seeing this huge uh, train of people going up uh, to the temple to, or up to Jerusalem to the tent of meeting to worship. But we know Scripture speaks of the future also and how we are gathered the temple of the Holy Spirit, how God tabernacles with us. He's pleased to dwell with us. And when there's unity, when there's truthfulness, when there's love shared and long-suffering, there's something just that pleases God and is morally good about that as well for others to see. What is it about those Christians I can go to those Christians. In fact, I can say in the last month, the number of people who have approached me out with the church has been staggering. Absolutely staggering. I am way over my head in terms of expertise and I've brought in lots of different professionals to help me. Why is that the case? I believe sincerely it's about believers over a long period of time, staying where they are called to stay, working with one another, forgiving one another, coming with expectancy that God has not finished with them and seeing a metamorphosis, a change, that those out with the church, when the chips are down, when the proverbial hits the fan, whatever phrase I should or should not use, Seek out those that they can trust, people of peace, people of integrity, people that they look up to for help in times of trouble. And I, and I know stories of others in this church who in the last couple of months have been uh, approached as well. But significant things. When brothers and sisters unite in unity. Verse 2, it is like precious oil pouring on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robes. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. So whether this is similes or metaphors, I don't know, but bear with me, I'm going to call them similes. The first one describes oil on the head of Aaron. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 29. If, if you can, keep your finger in there, Sam. Um, Exodus chapter 29, and we'll just see where that comes from. 
verse 21. There's lots more in this passage. And uh, oh, Let's read for 19. Take the other ram and Aaron and his sons shall lay their head on its head. Slaughter it and take some of its blood and put it on the robes on the lobes of the right ears of Aaron and his sons, on the thumbs of the right hands, and on the big toes of their right feet. Then sprinkle blood against the altar on all sides, and take some of the blood on the altar and some of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and on their garments. Then he and his sons and their garments will be consecrated. When a king, or particularly when a priest was consecrated to sacred service. He was anointed with fragrant oil. And Exodus gives into detail of, of what that is, of how much this and how much that to make this sweet-smelling perfumed uh, oil that was used to anoint. And as the first priest, the high priest here, Aaron, uh, he is the point of the simile. And the oil was used and his ordination, it was so abundant. Imagine the smell. In fact, when I think of that uh, being anointed, I, I think of how the woman came and anointed Jesus just before uh, the cross, of how she used, was, am I right in saying pure nard? I could be wrong with that. But, but the smell from this would have lasted on Jesus even as he hung on the cross. It was precious. It, it was abundant. And this is the picture we get with Aaron, the, the high priest, as he was anointed, and it saturated his head, it saturated his beard, and went all over his, his robes. His robes had um, uh, the 12 tribes that have been embroidered or a plaque or something like that. Part of his, his um, dress as being the high priest would have been something on them representing the 12 tribes. And even over all of that, the oil, the consecrated oil would have been flown totally and utterly all over him. He was perfectly ready and suited to represent a sinful people before a holy God. This is the picture that David is trying to get across as he is seeing the train of pilgrims coming, coming to worship. And his mind goes to that first priest Aaron of how he was consecrated and how good and pleasant it was that they could approach a holy God even though they were a sinful people. God had made the way possible. So this uni unity celebrated here is the oneness of God's people gathered in worship with their priest. And to say that it was good and pleasant, I think, is an understatement because what we are being described here is part of Israel's redemption. Of how they could come and approach God and worship. Now the book of Hebrews goes on to describe Jesus. If I put all that, that yeah. Goes on to describe how Jesus... It's not like the priests who had to continually go and offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. He made the sacrifice once and for all. And I think it's good for us. And I've just got, I've highlighted a few um, passages from Hebrews. And I'm going to read it out now. As we think of how we can come 
the audacity that we can come and please God, that we're a sinful people. What right does, do, do we think we have to do this? Well, it's all because of Jesus. Verse 14 in Hebrews 4 says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And then over to chapter 7. Jesus lives forever. He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our needs. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests such as Aaron, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for the sins once for all when he offered himself. And then verse 1 of chapter 8. The point of what we are saying is this. We do not have such a high priest. Sorry. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord and not by man. How good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters join together in unity when they come by the spirit it is like oil pouring down in Aaron's head not only in his head but over his beard and not over his beard but over his whole clothes because they're just saturated with the presence of God with the spirit of God how is that possible a sinful people because of Jesus who is able to sympathize but yet was blameless and now sits at the right hand of the father in glory interceding on our behalf he is our high priest and it's in him we live and move and have our being. And then David uses a second simile. He speaks of, um, it is as if the Jew of Hermon were falling on, the, on Mount Zion. Now, if Hermon, Mount Hermon is in the north of Israel. For a number of months, I think I may have read maybe six or seven, the year the snow and it's just in the right place um, to get all this moisture that then trickles down or rolls down and goes actually into the river Jordan and there it's, in a, it's a fruitful abundant place but in the south where Jerusalem is at Zion it's a dry and arid place for those of us who have been it's a hot place and here David is, is just thinking about what unity means and what it means when brothers and sisters are just on the same page. And he, he starts to think it wouldn't, it's just as if all of that moisture up there in the north in Mount Hermon actually flooded into Zion. It's as, it, the, 
it would just impact creation incredibly. And his mind is going there. How uh, blessed and fruitful life would be. That's, that's what it could be like when brothers and sisters live in harmony and unity. Bearing with one another. Forgiving one another. Preferring one another. When they slight them, not repaying that with a slight. When they hear that they're bad-mouthing them, not trying to get their own back by undermining them. They don't lobby against their brothers or sisters. But in their knees, they see a lot of mercy. They take the brokenness, they take their own hurt, and they take that to the Lord. They, they love them, they pray for them, they give to them. We used to do this thing in King's Kids and YWAM, and probably in our home church in, in Queen's Park, Glasgow, when we went away a weekend, and it was called Angels and Mortals. You were given someone that you were to bless over the weekend, and it was to be your secret. Only you knew who that person was. And likewise, someone was, was going to bless you. They were your angel, and you were their mortal, and you were someone's angel, and they were your mortal. And for the whole weekend, some people really went to town on this. And you would uh, go to do your, your duty in dishes, and lo and behold, um, someone who was your angel had arranged for someone else to take your place. And you were trying to figure out, who's my angel? Who's my angel? I've got the best angel in the world. And then you would come into your, your room and there would be nice chocolates. I often could figure out if a girl was my angel because they did things like heart chocolates and things like that. Guys never did that. And, but it was just wonderful. And the biggest challenge was if your mortal was someone that you really didn't like or you struggled with. And, I, and once or twice, I got that. It was a guy who just ripped, really frustrated me. And I can't remember if I was a good angel or a bad angel. I can't remember, but that's the challenge. <coughs> to love people as Christ has loved us. To bring some fruit into their life. And not doing it for your glory. You're doing it because God loves you. When brothers and sisters unite, it's a good and pleasant thing. It affects nature. It affects culture. Can you see, I think what David's getting at there, even nature can be changed. And God's people are united under their king in worship of God the Father. Because there is a kingdom of God. Not my will be done, but yours, as Jesus said in Gethsemane. I think David is trying to give us a picture there that is maybe too good to be true. But as he sees this train coming towards Jerusalem, he sees it and he's excited. And finally, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. What does there refer to? Does it refer to any place where brothers dwell in unity, as verse 1 seems to indicate? Or does it refer to Zion, which has just been mentioned um, here in verse 3? In other words, does God bestow his blessing indiscriminately on all unified people? Or is this a blessing for God's special people as they are gathered for worship in that God-appointed place, the temple on Mount Zion? 
I think given the testimony of Scripture, it seems unlikely that God gives eternal life whenever people dwell in unity. I think it's more likely that Psalm 133 is referring to a, a localized blessing in Mount Zion where the priest, where the high priest Aaron meditates, uh, mediates, sorry, between God and his people. Here's a, a wee quote um, from Jonathan Lehman from his book, uh, Rediscover Church. It was just brought out post-COVID. And he says, Jesus organized Christianity in this way. He means to center our Christianity around regular gathering together, seeing one another, learning from one another, encouraging and correcting one another, and loving one another. Spiritual things happen when Christians stand elbow to elbow, breathe the same air, join our voices in song, hear the same sermon, and partake of the one bread. You look around and think, I'm not alone in this faith. What might we do together? That phrase right at the end, what might we do together, reminds me of our small group, our home group, which is maybe about three months old. And it was just one person in that small group said that. What might we do as a small group in our community? And that's just taking arms and legs and there's real life in our small group as we're getting to know one another, as we're joining regularly with one another. See, we've had Zoom, which has been great and it served a purpose for a, a period of time. I know one or two dear friends of mine who are so burnt out with church that they still every week join in the Soul Survivor. One is a, a professor in a Bible college, but he is generally so, so exhausted with church and politics that go on in church. Um, and he preaches a lot in churches that whenever he doesn't need to be there, he joins with his, fam his family online. And he says to me, David, I know it's not right. And it's not long term, but for the time being, it is where I'm at. Because Zoom has served us for a period of time, which is good. But there's just something important when God's people gather together. Definitely in our small groups, because there people get to know us. People support us. I asked Jill this morning, do you know that Douglas has got COVID? And Jill says yes. And why I asked Jill was because Jill is part of Douglas's small group. And I was hoping that the small group would know before me, because that's community. People who regularly live one another. We are the church. Where we sit under God's word. Where we look around and we say we're not alone. These are all important things. You and I were made for this. And in Ephesians, just to finish, Paul describes the salvation that God gave us through Jesus for three glorious chapters in Ephesians. And then he begins to explain what it means. And here's where he starts in chapter four. He starts with unity and community. Book of Ephesians, read it for yourself. Constantly reminding them of, of the truth and reminding them of who they are and what Jesus has done. And then when he gets around to sort of commandments to direct them, he starts off with unity and community, bearing with one another. And Jesus died to create a new community in which div divisions cease. God shows his wisdom to the spiritual world as he points to the kind of community I think that Psalm 133 is describing. So it isn't far-flung and it isn't far-fetched. It shouldn't just be looked at this psalm when there's conflict in the church. It should be a picture when brothers and sisters say, I am part of that church community, bearing with one another. Some of them irk me. Some of them inspire me. 
but we are together, we are called to this place, wherever your church family is, and it's in there that I come and bring. I may be an ear part of that body, but that body needs that ear. I may be a big toe as being part of that body and the gifts that I bring, but without a big toe, that, that body is unstable. Whatever part you play in that body is so important. We know Paul goes into that in great uh, detail as well. What might we do together? Whether your church family is in Edinburgh, Glasgow, or Balnagask, what might God do when we love one another? We will be known as his disciples. Let's pray together. Lord, we acknowledge that over two years plus that many in the church have been battered. Many have been bruised. Thank you that you've not abandoned them. You've not abandoned us. Thank you that you pursue leaving the 99 in safety to find the one who's lost a description of your heart, Father. And thank you that you give a great feast. You kill the fatted calf, you clothe and, and you anoint the one who has um, been found once again. If that's us, Lord, would you help us to come to our senses that we would unite once again with you and your purposes and what you're doing. We want to be about your ways and what you're doing. We want to play a part, Father. Don't we run away like Jonah. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. In this community and the church communities acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Savior all over our nation and this world. Thank you that you are building your church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. And thank you that your calling is with us. And you're pleased to dwell with us through your spirit. And may we bring you great joy, our Lord. May your fame increase in our communities, our Lord. In our workplaces, O oh Lord. And would you use us? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.